Hi, it's Elise Lunan, host of Pulling the Thread. Today's guest is Martha Beck, author of the incredible book, The Way of Integrity. She explains the way back to complete wholeness and alignment, which leads to Satori, or the state of enlightenment. High schoolers are busy, but no one's too busy to help fight cancer. The Leukemia and Lymphoma Society is looking for their next student visionaries of the year. Could that be your child? High schoolers who participate in the seven-week philanthropic leadership development program gain valuable life skills like project management, communication, financial literacy, and entrepreneurship. Forming strong teams behind them, they fundraise for the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society in honor of a pediatric blood cancer survivor right in their local community. Most importantly, this campaign is an opportunity for high schoolers to engage in meaningful work within their community and make a real impact on the lives of blood cancer patients and their families. Sound like something your child might be interested in? You can learn more about Student Visionaries of the Year or even nominate a student at lls.org slash students. That's lls.org slash students. Robert Half Research indicates 9 out of 10 hiring managers are having difficulty hiring. If you have open roles, chances are you're feeling this too. That's why you need Robert Half. Our specialized recruiting professionals engage with our proprietary AI to connect businesses of all sizes with highly skilled talent in finance and accounting, technology, marketing and creative, legal, and administrative and customer support. At Robert Half, we know talent. Visit roberthalf.com today. Hi, it's Elise Lunan, host of Pulling the Thread. I'm an author, podcast host, and parent who built a long career in media. I grew up in a state of perpetual curiosity, investigating the world and asking a lot of questions. In this show, I chat with culture-defining leaders, thinkers, and experts about this rare moment that we find ourselves in and how to think about our own lives and experiences within a larger social and spiritual construct. I've won arm wrestles with big muscular men right out of prison. Because you align the energy, everything wants to harmonize with it and things start to flow with you. And it's silent and it's it's quiet, it's gentle, but it's incredibly powerful, the, the strength you can access when you're in a state of integrity. So as that starts to grow, we're seeing the Putins and we're seeing the Trumps because they are so freaking loud. And we don't even know that in the silence all over the world, there's another power rising and rising and rising and looking at what's happening in Ukraine and looking at the atrocities and saying, okay, we're not going to we're not going to do this anymore. So says Martha Beck, a Harvard-trained sociologist and life coach who is the author of many incredible books, including the just-released Way of Integrity, an Oprah book club pick that just might change your life. Martha describes integrity as that sense of wholeness that we can all tap into when we are aligned and attuned to our true selves on the deepest level. It is from that place that we feel unrestricted and safe, like we are at one with the world and each other, and that we no longer feel compelled to control our own behavior in order to earn acceptance and belonging. It is a place of strength, freedom, and radical honesty. Her book, which is a mixture of memoir, anecdotes from her own fascinating practice, research, and worksheets, uses Dante's Inferno as a guide to healing. As with any heroic quest, you must go down before you can go up, and Martha walks you there, hand in hand, until you reach the place of Satori, or enlightenment, which is really another word for the state of integrity. If you can't tell, I really love this book, and I loved our conversation. Here is Martha Beck. I loved the construct of your book because I'm writing a book about the sins. And so the fact that you, when I don't, it, mine's not a deep text on Dante, but obviously I reference, I mean, that's a, a cultural milestone. So I was like, oh, I'm, I'm in familiar. I'm in the land of the familiar. I thought Lovely. it was a brilliant way. Lovely. Not many yeah. people left around who are into literature, you know? <laughs> Like, is it on TikTok? I did not see Dante's TikTok. 
How many people have read Dante? I You inspired me. I need to go and reread Dante. No, you actually really don't. <laughs> <laughs> I read it like 9,000 times in all these different translations because I don't speak Italian. And, you know, there's a lot of medieval Italian politics that you can just like. Right. But weirdly, the metaphor that I started with, I just had an overall sense that there was a journey like hero's journey like integrity thing in in the divine comedy and as i really dug into it while writing the book oh my god like little details that he puts in are absolutely perfectly placed i mean he was such a psychologist it's amazing it really is yeah well that's what i think is so interesting going back into anyone who's somewhat mystical or the desert monks etc who are right. creating these concepts is that they were they were trying to create psychological systems really it was often grounded in in religion and morality where it can get a little skewed but really they were trying to codify and understand humanity who hasn't wondered what's happening to me you know like what what sense <laughs> is this why am i i mean in the old testament it's like i've seen everything under the sun and it's all futility you know what am i doing here so yeah they were all wondering about it like thousands of years before Freud or anybody. Yeah. And I loved, you know, we'll go, we'll, we'll go through the book in an organized way, but this idea, I'd never heard the word Satori and the way that you, and I'm probably mispronouncing it, but this idea of revelation or an yeah. understanding that Dante seems to express that you've experienced in your life. Like you talk about Byron Katie, I love her work as well, but the way that some of these people are articulating a version of the universe that aligns with an understanding that some of us have had and some others yeah. haven't. And, and it feels too ephemeral to put into words. But I loved that idea that that's where he's writing from. Yeah. And I love the idea that it's a brain state they can see on an fMRI. Like yeah. it can actually show that these two sections of the brain's go, brain go quiet and people experience this explosion of joy and illumination that the Japanese call satori. And people have been doing it all along in all kinds of different cultures. It's a really recognizable moment of, of explosive awareness. And it can happen to everybody. And afterward, you don't suffer as much. And I'm like, oh, please give me some of that. I know. It's true. And I loved how personal the book was in times and the way that you, you describe the visitation of light and sort of your own emergent intuition and trying to recognize and integrate what that even is, which I guess was your own Satori, right? Throughout your life? I think there are several. I don't think I've had like the big kahuna that that from which you never return. Where although I, I do think, you know, I look around at the world and it does look like a projection of consciousness. And but I've also read a lot of physics, you know? And what was really interesting to me again about Dante was that I read a lot of physics and then had this really different way of seeing the universe. And it came in pieces, partly because of what I was learning, partly because of meditation, partly because of suffering. But I read the quantum mechanics and then had the experience of the universe being that way, where Dante gets himself to the place where his brain is seeing things differently and describes quantum mechanics yeah. in 1320 something. So yeah, I've had a series and some come through the thinking mind and some come through the emotions and some come from some other place, you know, yeah. just pure consciousness. Yeah. It, it's interesting. Like even that, the, something that we perceive as a dichotomy, right? Like the rules of the universe and physics, and then this, this sense of a, a deeper system, quantum physics, which yeah. obviously is way beyond my understanding, beyond the rudimentary basics. And that we've always maintained, like you're a materialist scientist grounded in reality, or you're whack, like you're woo-woo and you're... Yeah. And then we're sort of coming at the same truth from two different directions. And there is this idea that actually these things overlap. And we're only now starting to have the scientific language to understand what has been sensed yeah. by some people as an extra perceptory understanding of... Yeah. The lay of the land. So it's it's a fascinating time to be alive. It is, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. And the key word that you just said is the same truth from different angles, because that was my whole point in trying to, well, I in my own life, before I wrote this book, it was about what actually is the truth. 
because I was yeah. raised very religious and then, you know, in a very cult like religion. And then at 17, I was ex- exposed to Harvard, where I stayed for another 10 years. So it was about as different as you can be. But both those threads, I said, you know, what is the truth? People are claiming truth on both sides of this. And so I started going at it in any way I could just to find out what felt true to me. And what ended up happening was a total revision of my entire life into something much more joyful, much more grounded, much. And I thought to myself, I'm going to write this down in a book so that other people can do it. (laughs) (laughs) And and just to clarify, people don't need to be familiar with Dante to exact 99.9% of the value from your book. But how was that? Did you stumble upon that as a framework? Like, how long have you been working with that as since a concept? I was, since I was about eighteen. Wow. So depressed, and I was in, and I had an eating disorder, and I was in therapy, and I read the Inferno, Dante's Inferno, and he goes. the The process is that he's miserable, he's lost, he doesn't know what's go- happening to his life, and he finds out that the only way he can leave this place of being lost is to go through hell, the inferno. And I always read everything, a psychological self-portrait of the author. And I just always did. I just always Mm -hmm. felt like I was looking at the inside of the author's head. So as I read the inferno, I was seeing him go down through his internal hell, looking at his demons, just like I was doing in therapy. And when he got to the very bottom where it's, so he's going down through the center of the earth and there he finds Lucifer the monster Actually, he calls him dis, which means divided, which is the opposite Mm. of integrity, which just means whole. And his guide says, you have to keep going down. And he's like, I can't go down anymore. I'm at the absolute center of the earth. And his teacher says, go on down. And he goes through the center of the earth. And suddenly the direction that used to be down is now up. And from there, it's a very quick trip back to the surface of the earth. And I experienced my therapy the same way. Like mm. when you get to the rock bottom and you keep going in the same direction without resistance, when you surrender to the, the, the fact that you're going to keep going down, it suddenly becomes up. And from then on, I was kind of hooked on Dante. <laughs> <laughs> and so that did that become when you as you've coached and by the way, I just need to flag here your practice as a coach and the people that you have coached, I was like, this is every page. I was like, wait, like a serial killer? I mean, no, I mean, it was so wild. The spectrum of people who have, you've worked with, murderers, best-selling authors. Beggars, yeah. Billionaires and beggars. I mean, wild. So just caveating that I was, I found that fascinating. It's not just the same person working their way through your program with you. Yeah. But is this what, how you've taught it? Or is each person... Is this how you coach or is each person distinct? Everybody's distinct and everybody follows similar patterns. So the reason I deliberately went seeking a lot of variety and different national cultures, different world cultures, different everything, is that I my PhD is in sociology. Mm-hmm. And I remember I took my PhD dissertation in and it was about gender role conflict in American women. And I gave it to my advisor who was a Danish man. And he read it. He said, I don't care about this. It has to be, it has to be interesting. You have to think of something that affects Danish men. <laughs> and I was just like, <laughs> hubris much. And That's I amazing. was, when I went back, I remember going back to my apartment and going, no, he's right. I have to find common threads in this experience that will resonate with everyone, or I'm not really doing the work. So I set out to find the same types of experience in different populations. And I, I, that's actually where I first encountered the sort of event of mysticism because I was dealing with all these women who were very, very conflicted. It was the 1980s and they were trying to do a family and home and they couldn't because those two roles are incompatible. And when I went looking, I found the same thing in populations where Western culture had been superimposed on traditional culture and they were being torn apart psychologically the same way. And the only escape from this was to have a mystical experience. To have, mm. So that's where I found the word Satori and started using it. All of us, when we're in conflicted situations where we feel torn apart, are being cracked open so that something can make its way in that will take us right out of our social context and just and give us the truth about life. 
So when I'm talking to an African beggar, that's what I'm looking for. When I'm talking to an American billionaire, I'm looking for the same damn thing. I'm just looking for what are the things in their life that are pulling them apart? Or as Leonard Cohen says, that there's a crack in everything. That's how the light gets in. So everyone's different. And yet we all follow similar patterns. And that's, that's Dante's journey down into hell, up through walking your talk through purgatory, and finally to paradise where you start to have joy and mm. inside and all that. I woke up at 2 a.m. last night drenched in sweat, throwing bedding off of me. Every pet was also on top of me, which probably didn't help. Many nights, I have the opposite problem, where I'm hunting in the hall closet for extra blankets in the wee hours because I'm freezing. In part, this is because my husband and I have wildly different sleep temperature preferences, and I'm cold because he's left all the sliding doors in our house wide open. But there's actually a solution I've come to learn. And I'm all about a sleep solution because we know how important good, uninterrupted sleep is for every facet of health. Have you heard about Chili Pad by Sleep Me? It's a bed cooling system designed to revolutionize the way you sleep naturally. The Chili Pad bed cooling system is your new bedtime solution. It lets you customize your sleeping environment to your optimal temperature, ensuring you fall asleep, stay asleep, and wake up refreshed. ChiliPad works with your existing mattress. It's a water-based mattress topper that continuously controls your bed temperature from 55 to 115 degrees. You can also choose a different setting than your partner so you each get what you need. What I want? A cool mattress with piles of blankets on top. ChiliPad believes sleeping at the optimal temperature helps people naturally reach their highest potential physically and mentally. Visit www.sleep.me slash thread to get your chili pad and save up to $315 with code thread. This offer is available exclusively for pulling the thread listeners and only for a limited time. Order it today with free shipping and try it out for 30 days. You can return it for free if you don't like it with their sleep trial. Visit www.sleep.me s-l-e-e-p dot me slash thread because you're not just investing in better sleep, you're creating a better life. You write, cultures need our cooperation to survive, so they're designed to control our behavior. And then you cite Mario Martinez, the three archetypal wounds, abandonment, betrayal, and shame. And why it's such a bummer that culture is so toxic and insidious and... And so often a lie. I mean, obviously, there's there's beautiful components of it, and we need to organize ourselves in some ways. But we, many of us, have been fed a lot of myths, right? With we long all, teeth, we all have, and everything is put in hierarchies, which are by nature destructive. And that, but the culture we have now is such a product of the medieval, like pyramid-shaped thing that happened when merchants and the church and the monarchies got together and formed this pyramid. And we think that's the way things have always been. Absolutely not true. Many, many cultures didn't have that. And when you start to find yourself, like I saw this with American women, some were very divided, but those who had been through their own personal hell, they might be living completely different lives, but they understood the process of being cracked open and then lifted. And because of that, I could get an 80 year old woman who always lived on a farm and like an 18 year old New York lesbian. And if they'd been through that experience, they were so fully accepting of each other's particularity. And those people create structures that are not pyramids They're I call it the pyramid in the pool. It's like a pool of, of water where everyone is equally represented. And the amount of, you you create waves depending on how much presence you can bring to your life. And those waves interacting form the society, the social model. So I think that we're on the very cusp of a massive shattering of of the pyramid structures. And the alternative where we're concerned as individuals is integrity, becomes yourself. And you, Yeah. yeah, yeah. And as you point out, you know, you sort of open the book explaining the science and the research that suggests that when we're in disharmony, out of integrity or out of this idea of wholeness, which is how so many of us have been raised and exist today, 
yeah. the it shows up in our lives in physical symptoms beyond sort of like the the lack of ease or lack of feeling good, really. And then that's that breaking, that moment of clarity when you're like, oh, I could be in a different way, which would feel so much better is our call to ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. Let me just, for people who don't know the book or anything, integrity, the word just means intact or whole. It doesn't mean virtuous. It means whole. And if you have the sense that you have lost yourself, it's usually because you've been socialized to abandon pieces of yourself that are very necessary to your wholeness. And given that choice, the vast majority of us split away from our nature and go with our culture. So we basically sell ourselves out. We do a kind of soul splitting. And if we could be content with that, it would be fine. We just all be little robots in culture, but nature doesn't give up without a fight. So (laughs) when we are divided, like even when people just tell little lies, if they ask people this one study, they said to some people just don't lie quite as much for a couple of weeks and they had no way of policing it. They just suggested this. At the end of those weeks, the people who had lied less than the control group had fewer physical symptoms of illness. They had fewer doctor visits. They had better relationship quality going on. They had better time at their uh, better time at their work. Everything started to feel better when they just started checking to see what was true for them and then staying with what was true for them instead of selling themselves out again. Oh, I loved that whole discussion, both going into white lies, black lies, and then this idea of gray lies, which I want you to define for us. But even backing up to, you know, I think we all know white lies, butler lies, like, oh, I'd love to, but I can't. I'm too busy. Is that true? Who knows? But the way that we betray ourselves, the sort of continual lying that you talk about, too, like when you asked the audience how many of you are uncomfortable and no one would acknowledge that of course they're physically uncomfortable sitting in stadium seats. So can you talk a little bit about that? Like the the ongoing sort of aversion we have to actually understanding how we feel in any moment? Yeah. It, if you're taught to be quiet and polite and sweet or bold and brave and fearless, depending on what your <laughs> immediate culture is, you will so embrace that role identity that you forget to notice that it doesn't, it's not true for you. So what you're talking about is when I would stop in a a speech and say to the audience, are you comfortable? Is everyone comfortable? And they would look at me like I was crazy. And I'd keep asking them, no, seriously, are you comfortable? Until they were like shouting at me, I'm completely comfortable. (laughs) And then I'd say, so if you were at home alone right now, how many of you would be sitting in this exact position? And no one would raise their hand. And then I would say, why not? And it would take them, like, you'd see all these brilliant people with their brows furrowed thinking, why would I not be sitting like this at home? And after about three minutes, they'd go, oh, I'm really uncomfortable. (laughs) And the problem wasn't the discomfort. The problem was that they looked me in the eyes and swore they were comfortable while at the same time knowing in a physical felt sense that they were uncomfortable. That's what I, that's duplicity, not integrity. And it's, a gray lie or a white lie to me, it's like, that's a, that's a white lie. It's fine to say, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm comfortable. Go on with the speech. It starts to get a little gray when you become really physically uncomfortable and you're still lying and you still, and you start to know that you're lying. In white lies, we often don't even recognize it as part of culture. But when you are really starting to hurt and you're still telling people, no, I'm fine, or I love this job or whatever it is, the lie starts to get grayer. And the more you sell yourself out, the more you will sell anything out until it gets Mm. to the point where some of the people that I've worked with have done things they were very, very, very sorry they did because they were suffering so much. They were trying Mm -hmm. to become whole again. So they became heroin addicts or whatever. It hurts so much to be split that pretty much everyone is on the hunt for wholeness. Only we don't want to do anything that would rock anybody's boat. And unfortunately, that's the only way. <laughs> yeah. Or, and I would, and I loved this, if you don't mind me reading to you from your own book, but 
because I have a question I want to ask you about it. So you write, this is this, I think, truth-telling exercise. Often my clients feel a bit unmoored or even offended by this exercise. The unpleasant things they're forcing themselves to do, the areas where they lie about their feelings, the times they obey shame or threats of punishment are the very aspects of their behavior they believe to be most virtuous. If you're a stay-at-home mother who's never really enjoyed being around children, a firefighter who longs for quiet intellectual work, or a soldier who doesn't thrive on routine, you may be proud that you forced yourself to go against your nature and do what appears righteous to your culture. Now I'm telling you that this admirable effort is out of integrity. Yeah. It's interesting. Like the, I couldn't be a stay-at-home mother. Not that I don't have a tremendous, it's too hard. It's too difficult. And yeah, I'd be really, it would, everyone would suffer. But so often we sort of tact, we have to sometimes go against our nature is one way, though, to at least acknowledge the truth of how you feel and then take action anyway? Or is that also duplicitous? No, it's not as duplicitous because you are being clear with yourself. So the, the most important person you need to be in integrity with is you. So for example, if your kid is throwing up all night, and of course, you'd rather not disturb your own <laughs> sleep and go clean vomit in the middle of the night. But if you tell yourself, I have to like this, this is what I live for. This is the, you know, and I have met mothers who feel that way, like really, like it is a huge, precious honor to be with that child and to do that job. It's an honor. And even though it's not pleasant, they are absolutely in their integrity. But for me, I had to say to myself, this sucks. I really do not enjoy cleaning up vomit. I'm going to do it. Because in the service of my values, this is a good idea. But then I also had to think as my kids got older, like, is it better? Like the the struggle with, do I put my youngest in Montessori classes? Because in my growing up culture, Mormonism, that would, that was, no, you didn't do that. But she was desperate for more entertaining days. And I was desperate for her not to be there for a couple of hours every day. And when her first day of Montessori school was like the happiest day of both our lives. So I had to like face the fact that I wasn't the mother my culture told me to be. But when I was the mother that I was meant to be, there was just love. There was just joy. Right. No, it's true. And I think we get so, it's it's understandable why we get so twisted, both from the programming of the culture at large, and then the way that it feels like it doesn't fit. And I certainly, I mean, I think men are so wounded by the patriarchy. Women obviously are its victims as well. But you look at what's happening with men and the way that they are, you know, you look at someone like Putin, right? It's like the distortions are so extreme. That was sort of a right turn to Putin from stay-at-home moms. But like... (laughs) (laughs) He's not a good babysitter. I'm just going to say that. (laughs) But yeah, you think about sort of how this is showing up culturally, and it's very devastating from the micro to the macro. Absolutely. And what he's doing is he's living out the, he is becoming the monster in the center of hell. And the monster in the center of hell, unlike a fiery hell that most of us think about, Dante put the Satan figure in a lake of ice where he was frozen in place. He couldn't move. He couldn't relate. All he could do was hate and destroy. And because he wouldn't go through his own suffering into the embrace of his hurt self, which leads to compassion, he just becomes a generator of evil. And we've kind of upended the pyramid in our culture. And it's not so much that Vladimir Putin creates an evil culture. It's that we have a culture that is bumping people like Putin and Trump and, you know, a lot of other people through the ages, you know, Dracula, whoever, (laughs) they rise to the top of this pyramid because of the design of the pyramid itself. And people with integrity shatter those pyramids the way Nelson Mandela did in South Africa, for example. But you're right. No way. Yeah. No, it's really interesting to watch too. And I feel like culturally that people are now, I'm sure people were, were, were doing this before too, but are able to also start to distinguish between people, behavior, and then peoples, right? So this idea that like, we're really talking about Putin, we're talking about a, a toxic man more so than a people. And that Absolutely. feels, yeah. It's always the emperor has no clothes. Yeah. And what's 
fascinating from the perspective, from my sort of sociology perspective going into look at integrity is why we don't say the emperor has no clothes. And you will be penalized if you're that person. I mean, when I left Mormonism and then wrote a book about why I left, I got death threats for years. I got, you know, I had to have special security and everything. Because if you say the emperor has no clothes and you go right at the surrounding culture, it will fight you and it will try to destroy you. And it may succeed. You know, Gandhi got killed, so did Jesus. Like a lot of these people who have gone through enlightenment experiences and tried to bring that into society have actually been killed for it. But as Jesus himself said, what does it profit you if you gain the whole world and lose your soul? So get your soul on board. And here's the thing, I think. I think now for the first time, and I've read a lot of thinkers who, who agree with me on this, the culture, the global culture has reached a point of such toxicity that what used to be a very rare event that would happen to a Buddha or a Jesus or a Gandhi has become more common. More people are being, well, that's what I saw studying women. They were being torn apart and then sort of thrown into this state of being more awake. Mm -hmm. Now men are being crushed. Women were torn between two roles, but men are being crushed by the pyramid and they're starting to break too. And for the first time in world history, I think we may see a massive shift that might just keep us alive on the planet for a while because it would lead to an ethos of care and and nurturing life instead of getting power by killing. I'm with you. I feel like we're at this a very intense deciding point of like is this going to hold, you know, in a different way or are we going to sort of rise here and you can sense it sort of within people this desire to sort of like it feels like a a line, right? And we're sort of like, can we pull this up, like get this density moving up yes, rather than yeah. letting it and, pull and us off? Here's the wonderful thing. The people who are making that shift and coming into integrity and becoming, there's a kind of power that one gains when you're in this awakened integrous state, when you're whole, you, you actually become stronger. I learned this studying Aikido. Suddenly when I get my... It, Aikido means the way of the harmonious spirit. So when I align all the parts of myself in integrity, suddenly, if you were here, I could show you, you become physically capable of like throwing people. I've won arm wrestles with big muscular men right out of prison because (laughs) you align the energy, everything wants to harmonize with it and things start to flow with you. Mm. And it's silent and it's, it's quiet. It's gentle, but it's incredibly powerful, the the strength you can access when you're in a state of integrity. So as that starts to grow, we're seeing the Putins and we're seeing the Trumps because they are so freaking loud. Mm -hmm. And we don't even know that in the silence all over the world, there's another power rising and rising and rising and looking at what's happening in Ukraine and looking at the atrocities and saying, okay, we're not going, we're not going to do this anymore. I love that. And it feels that way. But it is sort of that commingling. I mean, you can think of it too, not to go all over the place, but like the IF internal family systems and Richard Schwartz and his parts system yeah. of like figuring out where those little parts of self that you abandoned as a child are sort of littered along the way and then doing that work to sort of yeah. reintegrate them and bring them back. It's almost like Avenger style, you know? (laughs) I went and got an IFS therapist and started doing that because of- You did? Yeah. I'm like, oh my gosh, this guy has it. And I talked to Richard Schwartz. Have you interviewed him? I have. I love him. He's so wonderful. He's a Satori experience too. Yes. And like we had this interesting cagey conversation where everybody who does this kind of work experiences things that our culture does not smile upon or it doesn't believe in. Right. Start to have, to me, honestly, it's more like a shamanic ceremony than therapy. I go in, my therapist says, okay, take a few deep breaths and tell me what you see. And suddenly I'm seeing all these vivid pictures that are giving me messages very much the way it would happen if I were in a sweat lodge or a a shamanic journey in Africa, which I've done. And so again, science is coming at different science, social science is, is coming at this issue of wholeness and finding new ways to bring us together as individuals. 
And when we come together in ourselves, then the mass integrity of people who are in harmony with each other, ooh, that's very magical. Pulling the Thread is sponsored by BetterHelp. Sometimes Max, my oldest, tells me he wants to go in the back of the house and talk. What he means by this is purely the verb. He doesn't want to have a conversation. He wants to talk, to vent and unload, to fill me with factoids. Mom, want to know 40 things about acid rain? But more often, to get things off his chest. It's fascinating to listen to him and what he perceives to be injustices, annoyances, and harms. I recognize that in those moments, he doesn't want advice or for me to higher mind him or for me to justify his own feelings to him, but simply to be a container for the one-sided stream, to just listen. I recognize what he's doing because I do it every week too, in therapy. I was thinking just the other week that it's rare to find someone who will just listen, maybe point out some patterns or hold me accountable when I say something wild. Wait, Elise, pause. Do you really feel that about yourself? Or why do you think you care about this so much? But aside from these moments of intervention when my therapist makes me reflect or feel, I'm doing the talking. And it helps me feel so much freer. Thank God for therapy. This is one of the reasons I'm very excited for therapeutic solutions like BetterHelp. They have licensed therapists who are available worldwide and specialize in depression, anxiety, sleep disturbances, trauma, anger, family conflicts, LGBTQA issues, grief, and self-esteem. BetterHelp is online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist, so you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to match with the therapist. If things aren't clicking, you can easily switch to a new therapist anytime. It couldn't be simpler. No waiting rooms, no traffic, no endless searching for the right therapist. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash PTT today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash PTT. Speaking of Richard Schwartz or your book, which is also partly a workbook and it's a process that you, you go through, I loved the conversation that you had about, you know, you cite Joseph Campbell and the hero's way and how the teacher presents itself at this moment when you need them. And then similarly, like that need to kill the Buddha, right? Like do mm-hmm. not attach to any – I mean, you can work a system for a long time until you yeah. sort of extract the value that you need, but that – because we're also seeing a rise of sort of like this, and it's been around, but the guruification and these people who purport to have all the answers and right. that, that the fact that this is hard work and yes, you need a, you need a teacher, you need a, someone to walk with you for parts of the path in the way that Virgil did that for Dante, Yeah, but they can't do the work for you and they can only take you so far. Can you talk about that? Like the role of teachers and how to not get so attached? Yeah, in Buddhism, they call it the golden chains when you start to believe that you've got the answer and you decide this is it and you hang on to it and it can be solid gold. Another Buddhist metaphor is somebody trying to reach enlightenment symbolized by the top of a mountain and he's going through a forest, comes to a river and he stops and builds a raft to get across the river. And then he tries to pick up the raft and carry it with him up the mountain because that's what got him where he is. And the point is it doesn't work anymore. And so in the hero's saga, one of the very first things that happens after you accept your adventure is that you get a magical teacher. And in my life that the teacher has often been a book. Sometimes it's a human, sometimes it's a situation, sometimes it's a song, you know, like it can come in any form, but it will always tell you that the finger that points to the moon is not the moon. And the, the mm. truth for you is to drop all, and I know this sounds bizarre in our culture, to drop all belief and go to a place that where you accept that you do not know anything for certain. Nisargadatta Maharaj says, the only statement, the only true statement the mind can make is I do not know. Because ultimately we have no idea. We could be dreaming this whole experience. 
when you get there, you talked about Byron Katie earlier, and she talks about the incredible joy she's experienced ever since she stopped believing anything. (laughs) (laughs) And and when you don't believe anything, you're like a, a creature, a cat, a dog that just shows up and is available to whatever is I call it being in continuous creative response to whatever is present. Yeah. And that's what they mean by awake, because you have to be very curious and very alert to constantly see every situation as brand new and go on what comes from within you instead of some set of golden chains of beliefs that used to work. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, I think that's such a profound idea. And I loved you explored this in the book and, and it felt sort of, I had had a similar experience where you talk about like, if we can just bring ourselves back to this moment, and obviously a lot of people talk about this, like everything's in some way survivable until it's not, but we find that we're coping in this moment. And I was thinking, I mean, this is sort of a silly example, but when I got engaged to my husband, whom I love dearly, and we have, we've been through it, but we have a, a pretty strong relationship. But when I got engaged, I had an abundance of fear, like just it just stoked so much anxiety. And I was like, oh my God, you know, this is so big. What am I doing? And I was like, well, the way I talked myself off that cliff, because it didn't reflect how I felt about him. But I was like, if we're happy today, if we're like functioning today, like we're probably going to be pretty good tomorrow and stuff's going to come up. But like, this is a day by day process. This isn't like you don't sign and then you're done. Like every, I don't know, I was sort of getting at that same idea of like, if I'm love him in this moment, I'll probably love him in 60 seconds too. Probably, but you don't know. <laughs> <Me. laughs> Byron Katie, again, she and her husband, Stephen Mitchell, who's one of the greatest translators into English of spiritual texts. These two got married and they're very unusual and their entire wedding ceremony, the vows were, I promise to love you until I don't. That was it. <laughs> And the person who married them felt impa- compelled to make a little speech and about love lasting. And, the, and Stephen had to like take him out back and talk some sense. <laughs> like this, these are our wedding vows. I promise to love you until I don't, you know, <laughs> Katie wears the wedding ring until she wants to give it to someone. And that's, and she will, she's done it several times and then they've given it back. <laughs> I mean, that's amazing. And they're so in love. Oh my God. Like you want to see, they're almost, I think they're both 79 years old and they are passionately in love because there's no, there's no cultural structure holding them into the relationship. It's chosen moment to moment to moment. It really genuinely, and the love available when you are that present and someone's in that present moment with you is inexpressible. I mean, my God, if we can get that going at any level in the culture, like if 10% of people were free to be themselves like that and then connect with each other like that, it would be a golden age. It would, sh- it would shift amazing. everything. But so many of us really struggle with that ambiguity, right? Like that, that's a lot of pressure to sort of in that moment continually to cast spells of love with your partner, to not ever be able to take their partnership for granted, even for a day. There's no stress around. No, there's no pressure and no stress. Really? You can do whatever you want, whenever you want it. When you're in total integrity, the next step arises from within and you don't even feel like you're doing it. The two parts of the brain that shut down when people achieve this thing called enlightenment, when they do studies on Tibetan monks, for example, are this part that feels separate from the world, like here's my body and everything else is the other, that shuts down. So there's no no division between self and other. And then the sense of controlling your own behavior or anything else goes silent. And what you do then comes from some wellspring of goodness that just, you don't have to do anything. It just gets done. In the Tao Te Ching, it says, in the pursuit of knowledge, every day something is added. In the pursuit of enlightenment, every day something is dropped. Less and less do you have to force things until you arrive at non-action. When nothing is done, nothing remains undone. Mm-hmm. And that's because the force, the Tao, the way, whatever, it's moving all of us. It moves us like the wind moves the trees and you find yourself doing something and you don't even remember choosing it, but it brings you enormous joy. And there's no pressure to sustain it. It just sustains. Mm. 
Oh, Martha, when you just said, when you stop controlling your behavior, I almost started crying. I mean, that just like hit something so sad and true, at least for me. I'm sure I'm not alone. There's this belief in you that you have to control everything or, or all will be lost. And what the sorrow is telling you is that for you, super simple. That isn't actually true at the deepest level. And the sadness is coming from having lost the part that knows it. She never has to control anything. Yeah. Oh, God. It's so like, it's when you're writing about sort of C.S. Lewis, like you talk about how you write, I must remind you here that being out of integrity isn't a sign you're bad, only that you've internalized false assumptions, usually in an effort to be good. The most moral, well-meaning people often have the biggest infernal landscapes filled with the most frightening demons. Yeah. yeah. Is that just because all of this cultural programming, like those maybe sensitive people who are more sensitive or engineered towards, I don't know, that it really works on, it's the most in, intense with people like yeah. us? If you're very, if you try very hard to be good and you really, you're a loving person. So you really want to make other people happy. You will absorb more of the culture's musts and have tos, and you will leave more and more of yourself behind. So, and some people like crack under the weight of that and do become addicts or something. The, the six things people tell me is number one, they've lost their sense of purpose. Um, this is when you embrace the culture's uh, attitude about what you should be rather than going from within. Then there's emotional devastation, then physical illness, then your relationships fall apart. Then you don't know what to do with, at work with your career. And then you may get an addiction. And it's kind of the better you are, the more you want to please others, the faster those and mo most more intensely those things happen to you. What's the underlying fear that drives that? Fear of disconnection, not belonging. Like what is, what is it? Yes. The single fear is I am not loved. I am mm. alone. Yeah. I'm not okay. I'm not good. I'm not lovable. That is at the, that is what Satan is thinking at the base of hell in Dante's Inferno. I am wrong. And that's why he calls him dis divided from the truth because even he also calls him Lucifer, the angel of light. Right. Right. And the moment the angel of light splits and rejects itself. It becomes the darkest dark. Vet bills can be expensive, but Spot Pet Insurance can give you up to 90% cash back on vet bills so you can worry less about high vet bills. Yep, up to 90% cash back on vet bills for unexpected accidents, illness, and even routine care. And with Spot Pet Insurance plans, you can go to any vet you want in the U.S. or Canada. There's no network you need to stick to, so visit your favorite vet and you can save money on expensive vet bills. That's Spot Pet Insurance. It's no wonder Spot is America's favorite pet insurance. Visit SpotPet.com for a free quote today. For all terms, visit SpotPetIns.com slash sample-policy. Spot Pet Insurance plans are underwritten by either Independence American Insurance Company or United States Fire Insurance Company and produce Spot Pet Insurance Services, LLC. This is an independent ad from Spot Pet Insurance Services, LLC. So let's talk a little bit, speaking of, of along these lines, about you you call it inner violence. And I remember reading, you know, reading this with, with Byron Katie as well, where she talks about this this uh, false belief that so many of us have that without that cudgel, really, like we won't be good. We won't, we won't recycle. We won't <laughs> right. care about injustice, you know, or move, be moved to action without that sort of internal lash. How do we, how do we break that dependence well, so we have this internal violence. It's usually our internalization or introjects of things people have told us and, you know, in our families, at churches, at whatever, in college, wherever you got an ideological education. And false assumption is that it's that carrot and stick driver that keeps you moving at all. Mm. And when the carrot and stick are completely gone, especially the stick, you won't do anything. But love is a verb. And as Katie herself says, do you think love just sits there in the presence of suffering? Love acts. That's what love is. And we think we will be nothing without the carrot and the stick. But in fact, what we are is love. That's why our greatest fear is I'm not lovable. I am not love. That's the deepest lie. So when you let go of all the other lies and you get rid of the lie, I am not love, 
You go like an arrow wherever love sends you and you will gladly go into your own death. You will do anything, but not because you think you have to, because there's an inherent joy and it seems to be happening almost by itself. And I know that sounds really weird. It's very countercultural in our culture, but even though I don't consider myself enlightened, I've, I can tell you that is true. Yeah. Mm. I don't remember like deciding to write this book. I don't remember deciding to use Dante. I don't remember because it just, I just did it. I just sort of sat down and there it was. And that's <laughs> all I do is like get up and meditate. Yeah. And other things seem to happen. Yeah. But I, and I loved the, you know, sort of the back third of your book where you're really talking about that part of your life and this idea of, I think you talk about, I think you were pregnant with Adam when you became psychic and we're all a little psychic. I noticed it we are. I was pregnant. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, but so much of it, you know, you talk about not knowing, I, I feel the same in my own creative process where I'm like, this is so s- silly really. But as we were saying at the beginning, I'm writing this book about the sins and, and patriarchy. And I was, I thought it was this novel idea. Like I, it came to me, I was like, oh, this is my book. Like I, and then I was like, oh wait, in college, I majored in English and fine arts and my fine arts thing was about fairy tales, archetypes, and like these ideas of women. And then my English thesis was about John Milton and Andrew Marvell and the Garden of Eden and the loss of innocence. And it's like, oh, wait, the universe is pushing us and bringing this back to us. And And so often we're impervious to its nudges. Yeah. And I don't even think of it as something outside me nudging me anymore. And I don't think it's coming back because I think it's always, it is in its essence, what we are. When you strip away the everything that's not true, you become the same thing that wrote Milton's poetry, but the same thing that wrote Dante's poetry. When I was writing the last chapter of the book, the divine comedy is all in past tense until Dante actually reaches the source of the universe, which is this unfolding flower-like light in Asia. It's a lotus. He describes it as a rose. Mm-hmm. And then he, he's been experiencing more and more joy and illumination and like this explosive understanding of reality. And then he gets there and he's ready to go into that light and he switches into the present tense. Mm-hmm. And then he says, and now I become one with the love that moves the sun and the other stars. And I was reading that again after many times and I felt this shock go through me. And I felt like I had seen pictures of Dante in profile, a famous portrait of him in profile that came into my head. And then it turned and I was looking straight into these eyes and they were looking straight at mine. And I knew there was no difference between him and me in Mm -hmm. no difference in time, no difference in space. We were the same consciousness looking through two sets of eyes. And he was in the present tense. He was in my room with me and I was there with him and everyone else was there too. It was this mind blowing experience. I've never taken a lot of drugs, but that I would take a drug (laughs) that made that happen. (laughs) That's amazing. It was. Yeah. And, but I think it's like, we can talk about Satori experiences or that, or those like full body resonance moments when you're, or just this, like, you're having a conversation with someone, they mention something, and then suddenly it's relevant and applicable and the key to what you need, yeah. you know, that I think happens to people all the time. And it's like, yeah. do you, in your experience, the more you become attuned to that, the more you pick up those threads, do you oh feel like God. the, it gets stronger? All I wanted to do when I set out to be in integrity myself was I just wanted to get the crazy differences inside me, you know, the Mormon girl and the Harvard student and this and that and gay straight, all all these different roles I've played in my life. I just wanted to know what was real. So I just started telling the plain, honest truth and doing what felt right all the time. And I, I wasn't even trying to be virtuous. I was just on this journey. Well, the closer I got to being true to myself in my thoughts and my actions, I did not want to have woo-woo experiences. I thought no magical thinking. People put that on self-help stuff and I don't like it. Well, when you just set out to be honest, 
the matrix is wildly alive around you and it throws things at you. I mean, I'll give you an example. I was living in California. There was a terrible drought, as you know. And one day I just couldn't take it. And I was like, I just need someone. I was living in the woods. I need someone to tell me something about the drought, somebody who knows something. And we, we were living in the woods out in the middle of nowhere. And that later that day, I had not watched television at all in that house. And somebody was watching a football game and the news was coming on. And I said, I want to watch the news in case I want to watch the weather. And she said, well, in that case, we should switch to this other channel. We switched to another channel. And what I saw was my own face. This woman from that station had come out and interviewed me like months earlier. And I don't know why the delay was there, but there I was. And <laughs> so they, they did a story about me moving to California. And then the anchor woman bumps to the weatherman. She said, you know, Martha told me she's really worried about the drought. It's like somebody dying of thirst in front of her. And the weatherman looks at me out of the wall and says, well, I probably shouldn't give advice to a life coach, but Martha stop worrying about the drought. <laughs> it's going to be okay. And the drought wasn't over, but like, that wasn't an, un it really wasn't that unusual for me to get that weird uh, an event. Like that stuff happens to me all the freaking time. And it means I just believe in magic. I believe in magic too. And I think that this idea, you know, your book, takes people through a journey and through a series of exercises. But even just that, the radical tooth tell sorry, radical truth telling yeah. required of like, am I comfortable right now? Do I actually want to go to drinks with this person? You write about the you, you write it just it isn't just our brains that struggle when we lie. Our bodies weaken and falter as well. One study showed that people who present an idealized image of themselves had higher blood pressure and heart rates, greater hormonal reactions to stress, elevated cortisol, glucose, and cholesterol levels, and reduced immune system functioning. Lying and keeping secrets have been linked to heart disease, certain cancers, and a host of emotional symptoms like depression, anxiety, and free-floating hostility. But is that sort of – for people who are listening, is that the place to start, that recognition of like – and probably all of us are in some parts, except for you, out of integrity a little bit. But Believe me, I'm not home yet. <laughs> you're not home. Not but home. is radical truth telling, even if we only express it to ourselves, is that where we start? I, it's nice to ask yourself, yeah, is this true? Is this true? Is this true? That's really, really helpful. For people who are just beginning or who are listening to this, I'd really like to point you first toward the truth that kindness toward everyone is your nature and that it must start with kindness toward the self. Mm. So I've been reading a lot of, I'm writing another book. And one of the things I've realized is and found through research is that fear and physical pain are very often linked to self-criticism or self-attack. So the last thing I want is for people to go, I'm not in integrity. I, I need to be better. I'm a bad person. <laughs> Start by sitting there and saying, okay, where am I lying? And then, oh, all right, I, I went to coffee with this person. I really didn't want to. And then say, why did you do that? You know, that's understandable. Everybody has done that. How did it feel? Do you really want to do it again? What could, what could we say next time? So what you want to do is come into your truth telling the way you would sit with a three-year-old that you love very much and say, wow, I really understand why you would do that. And lots of other people do it too, but did it feel okay? Because if it doesn't, let's think of a new way. That's the highest level of a self-attack you should ever, ever, ever resort to. Mm. Kindness is the first truth. And you, if you start from that, the rest is much easier. And I mean, your story, your personal story is so intense and profound and difficult and such a model, I think, for someone being able to do that, right? And come back to yourself. It's very inspirational. But that love, I mean, so much it's that idea of reparenting or identifying that core belief, I'm not lovable, mm -hmm. that do we all have some version of that? Some of it's more performative, some of it's... Yeah, I think almost everyone does. Everyone over the age of like six months. <laughs> My son with Down syndrome has less of it, far less of it than most people. So he's been an incredible teacher for me. 
Like he just doesn't, if somebody calls him and he doesn't want to talk, he'll just be, he'll say no. And I'll say, well, your friend really wants to talk to you. He's very upset. And Adam's like, no, I'm relaxing. So yeah. not now. And I'm just, oh, you know, I, that's why I'm not home yet. I still have these cultural pressures that I buy into, but Adam is a very happy person. And it's not just because he's, he doesn't have the, the IQ that some people do. It's because of his honesty, really. When you think about parenting, I have two little boys and it's, it's mm. like, how do you not, how do you, even if it makes you uncomfortable, like they'll, they'll get on like a, on their iPad, like a FaceTime call with like a friend play Minecraft. And then they'll be like, I don't want to talk anymore. You know, it's similar. It's like, I'm done. Don't call me again. I'm like, like, you're gonna, it's so crushing. And then I'm like, but I shouldn't be telling them to prioritize. I don't know. It's really hard. It's hard to know. Yeah, it is. And and the, that's why the guide is always kindness. That's what I come to is that the truth is very difficult to suss out when you have all these conflicting messages. And for me, I had to spend a lot of time alone looking inward and not everybody like a, a mother of young kids doesn't have that kind of free time to meditate. So the first thing you want to do is take some time alone, get, even if you just go to, into the bathroom, lock the door, sit down and think what would feel like a kindness to myself? Could I let myself off a hook that would feel not sleazy, but uh, like, I really don't have to control them or they're going to grow up who they're going to be who they're meant to be pretty much no matter what I do. <laughs> yeah. And so what can I do to make myself, like, wouldn't it be a, an interesting thing to give my little boys a happy mother, mm. a relaxed mother who doesn't try to control them? Yeah. Oh, it's so contrary to all of our cultural programming. It's so hard. It's really hard. And it's there's no A-B test, you know, for parenting. There's no like, we'll try this and we'll try that. And then we'll pick the best path. Like it is such a crapshoot. It is such a crapshoot. Yeah. <laughs> Talk to my grown kids. They'll be like, yeah, she, she is not home yet. <laughs> but at least we know we talk about it. And we, there's so much joy and connection when you've grown up saying to your kids, I don't know. I think I did that wrong. I'm going to try something else. Like just out there, honest. Yeah. No, for for sure. And our and my final question, you talk about not being home, but like, are any of us home until we die, you know, until we see that light? Isn't this all iterative and hard? Is that we're always home all the time. And that in the pursuit of enlightenment, every day something is dropped. And when I say I'm not at home, it's because I sometimes grab little cultural things and, and like hold them up and say, okay, I, I'm actually not going to just wear pajamas and a bathrobe to the store. I'm going to put some clothes on, but you know, Byron Katie would just wander down the street after her enlightenment. And if, and she'd go up to people and say, I need to be hugged and no one ever refused to hug her. So when she dropped it all, the world was incredibly kind, but that's all she did. She dropped all her acculturated beliefs and she became what we all are in essence, which is pure. And it, there's no word, there are no words for this, but the most exquisite peace, love, joy, creativity, humor, delight, fascination, everything. Like we are always home, always. We just distract ourselves from it. And the mm -hmm. more lies you drop, the more it shines. I'm gonna try and be more truthful in my life because the person that I continually betray as we sort of got to in this conversation is myself and overrunning what it is that I want to do or how I want to who I want to see and continually undermining my own <laughs> desires I don't think I'm unusual I think that's so much of, of life and really, we, we have to do a lot of things that we don't want to do. That's also part of life. But I think being conscious about that and allowing that I'm going to be really considerate to myself and what I choose to do, knowing that there's a certain amount of stuff that I don't have choice about, feels like an essential hug, really, a moment of kindness to myself 
There are a few moments during our conversation where I felt really emotional, and I also feel called to listen to that. Obviously, I'm very interested in the ways that culture has informed the way we control our behavior to abide by ideas of being good, behaving, doing what others need us to do. That is, as Martha would say, not in integrity. And abandoning ourselves continually is not okay. And we know this collectively. We look around, we understand how sky-high anxiety levels, increasing rates of cancer, autoimmune disease, heart disease, and obviously there are environmental factors for all of this as well. It's complicated stew. But there's certainly something about this moment of being alive where we are creating a lot of disease in our bodies, that lack of ease. Anyway, her book's incredible. It's a great process for any of you who are looking for a process to follow. And I also love that she doesn't insist that she has really any answers, and no teacher should. The best teachers really allow you to figure out your own truth and that internal work that no one can do for you. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. You can find show notes and full transcripts of the episodes at theelisepodcast.com. Please sign up for my newsletter, I Promise I Won't Spam You, or follow me on Instagram at Elise Lunan to get updates on new episodes. I'd also like to give a huge thank you to my sponsors who make this show possible. Please support them the way they support this podcast. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studio. If you enjoyed this episode, please listen, rate, review, and follow Pulling the Thread, available now for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Odyssey, or wherever you get your podcasts, i.e. wherever you're listening right now. I also want to thank you in advance for sharing any episodes with friends you think might like the show, because that is how podcasts grow. I want to give a shout out to Phil Svitek, Lauren LaGrasso, Serena Reagan, Mary-Kate McDonough, and the entire Cadence 13 team for producing these episodes, and to Valero Duvall for my key art. Take care of yourselves. I'll see you next week.